Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. Uh, just a few minutes ago, the uh, House Republican Conference voted by voice vote, voice vote, uh, to throw Liz uh, Cheney out as uh, as chairman of the House Conference, as expected. So as our colleague uh, Tim uh, tweeted out, it is official. The only member of Congress to receive any sanction over the attempt to overthrow an election and the siege of the Capitol is the woman who would not go along with it. And joining me to discuss this rather remarkable moment uh, in the devolution of the Republican Party is former Virginia Congresswoman Barbara Comstock. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. Great to be with you this morning. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and I want to get your insight into uh, you know how we got here and where we're going. So let, let's start by. I want to start by playing a, a soundbite of the remarkable speech that Liz Cheney gave on the House uh, floor last night. And I, it, it's striking if you've seen the picture of this. All of her Republican colleagues, except one, apparently left the chamber. Uh, they didn't want to stick around to hear this. Uh, she spoke for about six minutes. I think this is about two minutes, but it's a remarkable speech. So let's let's start there with Liz's final uh, speech on the House floor as House conference uh, chairwoman, uh, Liz Cheney. God has blessed America, Mr. Speaker, but our freedom only survives if we protect it, if we honor our oath taken before God in this chamber to support and defend the Constitution, if we recognize threats to freedom when they arise. Today, we face a threat America has never seen before. A former president who provoked a violent attack on this Capitol in an effort to steal the election, has resumed his aggressive effort to convince Americans that the election was stolen from him. He risks inciting further violence. Millions of Americans have been misled by the former president. They have heard only his words, but not the truth, as he continues to undermine our democratic process, sowing seeds of doubt about whether democracy really works at all. I am a conservative Republican, and the most conservative of conservative principles is reverence for the rule of law. The Electoral College has voted. More than 60 state and federal courts, including multiple judges the former president appointed, have rejected his claims. The Trump Department of Justice investigated the former president's claims of widespread fraud and found no evidence to support them. The election is over. That is the rule of law. That is our constitutional process. Those who refuse to accept the rulings of our courts are at war with the Constitution. Our duty is clear. Every one of us who has sworn the oath must act to prevent the unraveling of our democracy. This is not about policy. This is not about partisanship. This is about our duty as Americans. Remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. So, uh, Barbara Comstock, you know, it, it strikes me listening to that I, again, that even though Liz Cheney uh, suffered a huge defeat, that this was really kind of Liz Cheney's moment. So talk to me a little bit about that speech, the fact that she is not only not backing down, she seems to be moving to ramming speed. And none of her colleagues wanted to stay on the floor to listen to her last night. 
Well, I think it really was an historic moment, and it will be. And I think Liz is strengthened by this. I don't think this is, you know, history has its eyes on us, and they're going to look and see that, you know, Liz stood up at, you know, threat to herself at this moment. And I think the real problem now is going to be, you know, every member of the Republican conference is going to be asked, what was your position on this? And when they go home, you know, maybe the loudest people will have wanted, you know, Liz gone, but there's going to be people who don't like that and who don't like the reality of, uh, you know, running people out of the party for not believing the big lie. And then the bigger problem, which Liz is definitely, you know, you know, put her finger on is that this lie being out there now for over six months because the president, you know, Donald Trump started this before the election is continuing to just infect, you know, the Republican Party and Republican activists. And you see that when, you know, they're um, doing censure resolutions against the various uh, members and senators who voted for impeachment. And I think that's a big long-term problem. And it also, it's it's sore loserism. So we're every, we already have in Virginia a situation where an attorney general candidate who was the Trumpy candidate lost somewhat narrowly, more narrowly than expected. And fortunately, the guy who won actually didn't decide to go a Trumpy way. But the Trumpy candidate is now trying to challenge what was a convention in Virginia run by all Republicans but this whole conspiracy theory paranoia is just infecting the party in a very dangerous way. But it's and it's just morally wrong. I mean, that is the big, you know, and that's what it's not political. It, I mean, it is impacting the party and hurting the party, I think. So from a partisan standpoint, it doesn't make sense. But more importantly, it's just wrong for the party to be you know, continuing to um hitch their wagon to this sore loser guy who, you know, twice impeached, twice lost the popular vote and is not going to be the future of the party. Well, I, I know it's redundant to say this, but the, the cowardice of the Republican elected officials was was so stark over the last 24, 48 hours, five years, whatever you want to do. Uh, they, they decided to oust her on a, on a voice vote so that no one went on record. They didn't even have a they didn't even have a secret ballot. Your your thoughts on that? I mean, is that, is that the normal way of doing sort of thing? Is are we anywhere close to normal in the way that they're doing business? No, <clears throat> and that's and that's the problem with in the Trump world. Nothing's normal anymore, and I understand why. You know, and I'm sure many in the caucus probably appreciated. Okay, we don't have to have a vote. But I think they're missing the part that you're still going to be asked about it anytime you go out in public. And that's, that's a big problem. And, you know, as Liz has pointed out, you know, I mean, I understand, I mean, you know, I was in, I mean, I ran in 16 on the ticket with Trump. I actually did not vote for him. And I publicly, you know, when the Access Hollywood tape came out, you know, I publicly said, you know, I break it with thee. I'm not, I'm not going there. But I understood when my other colleagues didn't do it and I didn't fault them for it and certainly supported them. And then once Trump was elected, we all had to find a way to work because he was elected, just like when governors that I served with in the state house got elected that I didn't care for, Terry McAuliffe. He still signed some of my bills and I still had to work with him on behalf of my constituents. So I get that. I even get it through 2020 because it's a binary mm -hmm. choice. This is what you have to do. But January 6th is what changed everything. And it certainly changed it for people like Liz and for Adam, who said, 
even though I'm in a very conservative district, you know, that supported Donald Trump, I can't stand with this big lie. So to me, the January 6th is really the dividing line. And that's where I have a, I mean, last year I worked with, to get, you know, Susan Collins elected, to get Joni Ernst elected. And I understood they each had to do different things. I mean, I supported Amy Coney Barrett, Susan Collins didn't. I'm okay with that. I understand to have a majority, you have to have people who span, you know, what is a majority of the country to get that. And I've sort of in that big tent of, you know, if you want to be in a majority, you have to get different voices. And that's actually good and you shouldn't be afraid of it. But after January 6th, it, it wasn't about party anymore. And when people say, oh, but, you know, you want to, you know, now Joe Biden's going to nominate bad judges. I said, well, that's, you know, when you lose, they get to nominate the judges. We certainly got, you know, that's one of the reasons a lot of Republicans liked Donald Trump was he was going to elect good, you know, nominate good judges. And for the most part, he did because he outsourced it to the federal right. society. I like the judges that were appointed. But all those judges said the big lie was a big lie. And those judges that everyone says, oh, I voted for Trump just for the judges. It's like, well, then listen to the judges. Listen to Bill Barr. Listen to all of the people that you have respected in the past who know this is a big lie. But now people are afraid, well, Donald Trump's going to come in and dump on me in my primary. Well, just fight that and, and go, you know, just get out there and and. You know, I'd rather fight with my back against the wall <laughs> than to be on your knees for Donald Trump. I mean, it's just not worth it for the party. And look, and, and I've pointed, you know, you go back and you look at in 2018, you know, Trump supported Chris Kobach in Kansas. Now we have a Democrat governor. So his candidates aren't automatic winners, even in a Republican state or district. He went after Mark Sanford. OK, he ousted Mark Sanford in the primary, but then we lost in the general. So they're going to start messing around in these races. And I think this has opened up the floodgates for all, not just Trump to mess with things, but all his hangers on who may basically want to make a buck. They're going to say, hey, I can go into this sure. and primary them. And actually, you know, Virginia Fox, who put in the resolution, she's got a primary opponent, some young guy who probably is going to run to the right of her as more Trumpian in the future. Uh, and And we've ended up really particularly in those red seats, getting worse people. Okay, so let's 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 talk about your your point that January sixth changed everything. I certainly agree with you. Liz Cheney clearly agrees with you. Adam Kinzinger agrees with you. But what we saw today was that the vast majority of Republicans don't. In in, in fact, if anything, they are doubling down. So let let's go back a little bit to to how we got here. So on January sixth. Mike Gallagher, and I'm focusing on him because I know him, um, because he was, you know, once one of the rising stars here in the state of Wisconsin, may still be in the Republican Party. Um, one of the people who we thought was going to, you know, keep arm's distance from the worst elements of Trump. Mike Gallagher is actually goes on one of the cable stations and makes an appeal to Donald Trump to stop it. So this is Mike Gallagher on January 6th. I mean, this is insane. I mean, I, I've, I, I've not seen anything like this until, since I deployed to Iraq in 2007 and 2008. I mean, this is America, and this is what's happening right now. We need, the president needs to call it off. Like, call it off. Call it off. It's over. 
The election's over, and the objectors need to stop meddling with the primal forces of our democracy here. They need to stop it. Like, there is a cost. They think they're just having a protest debate, and they can get away with it because it's not actually going to overturn the election. Well, now we're seeing the cost of that play out in real time. And if we don't think other countries around the world are watching this happen right now, we don't think the Chinese Communist Party is sitting back and laughing, then we're deluding ourselves. So call it off, Mr. President. We need you to call this off. And yet, Barbara Comstock, yesterday, Mike Gallagher said that he was going to go along with Kevin McCarthy and he was going to vote against Liz Cheney, who said the same thing. So there was a moment when it looked like for somebody like a Mike Gallagher, the January 6th would change everything. So how did we get from then to today where apparently he was sitting at the back of the chamber going, I throw her out of office. Yeah, I mean, that's what's sad. And and the thing is, you know, once Trump lost in November and then left in January um, post-insurrection, that was the time to turn the page. And, and sure. we did, you know, voices come out. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, as Liz has pointed out, said that on the well, floor. And so yeah. you had this opportunity to turn the page. And that's what, what's sad is at a time when the polls show, and I think it's true that his influence is waning, even among those who even believe him, they're, they're getting that, okay, he divided the country and he couldn't win. Now he's dividing our party. So, I mean, when, when you're trying to put together a win, particularly in these districts that get you to a majority, you have to put together what is always a very challenging constituency and coalition Donald Trump makes that impossible to do that. Now, he, you know, they think in the red districts, hey, you got to be loyal to me in the red districts because you'll, you know, we'll win those seats anyway. But again, Chris Kobach, uh, Roy. Okay, okay, but let's talk about Mike, Mike Gallagher. Mike Gallagher is, is in a safe seat. He's not going to be primaried. Um, the only thing that I can think of is that, you know, that on the off chance that Ron Johnson does not run for re-election to the Senate next year, that that uh, Mike Gallagher would jump into a Republican primary, a statewide Republican primary. And maybe this will, you know, keep his credentials clean, but as you point out, um, may actually kneecap him in the general election. Uh, I, I guess I guess that's that's the thing is watching someone who knows better, who who actually has internalized exactly how terrible January 6th was who understands the political dynamic you're describing and yet publicly says, I'm going to go along with ousting Liz, Liz Cheney. So it's, I, I, and I don't want to be too unkind here, but it it is kind of the little bit of the Paul Ryan syndrome where it is the best lack all conviction It's the people you're looking at. I'm I'm talking about Mike Gallagher as opposed to the other hacks, you know, from, from Wisconsin who I, I don't expect any better from, but I expected better from Mike Gallagher. Obviously I shouldn't have. Well, it, well, and the problem, too, is, it, you know, in, in fairness to those guys, and I know a lot of my colleagues who are in those situations, is if they lose that red seat, you get a lot worse. Tom Graves retired and we got Marjorie Green. Tom Graves was a governing member of the Appropriations Committee, a good member, wasn't out there doing crazy things. But now in that red district, we have a Marjorie Green. So this, this is the problem that they face, because I know they're thinking, well, okay, if, if I'm not here, you get someone even worse. Um, I know that was certainly the case in, in my district. If, you know, the guy mm-hmm. I had primary in 18 and, and the person who ran was, you know, certainly um, no prospect of winning. And my district was one that Trump got a whole 38 points in, in 2020. Mm-hmm. So, 
um, or, or maybe even a little less. So I, I understand how they're processing it. Like, hey, you're only going to get worse without me. But that's where I think the problem is the leadership and this, this you know, and if, and if Kevin and Steve had decided, hey, we're going to keep a big tent, not only in the party, but in the leadership, then it would allow and, and say, we're not going to talk, you know, we're going to move on, but we're going to allow people to have different views. That's really what Mitch McConnell has done. And I think Mitch put the marker down by making his big statement, um, you know, during impeachment and really say, and, and, and he hasn't gone to Mar-a-Lago and he is allowing that diversity of views within his conference. And notably, nobody in Senate leadership, you know, John Thune, Roy Blunt, Joni Ernst, none of them voted, you know, to decertify the election. They weren't, you know, in any way encouraging the insurrection before or certainly after. But I do okay, think so that, yeah. a different tack there in leadership. And that is was what is sort of metastasizing this cancer that is staying there, that the House is kind of buying into this Trump can ruin your life thing. Whereas I think Mitch McConnell's going to be, hey, I don't want the Trumpy Eric Greitens in in Missouri. That would be a disaster and we could lose that seat. And they're going to be, you know, working hopefully to do something different on that front. So I do think I, I do make a difference between how the Senate treated January sixth and after versus the House. Okay, so let's let's go let's go back to that because I, I think this is still extraordinary because it's not that long ago. Um, and keeping in mind that that uh, they just ousted Liz Cheney for saying that Joe Biden won the election and the January 6th insurrection was a real threat to our democracy. None of the things she said last night should be controversial. But not only are they controversial in the Republican Party, they're disqualifying. But again, let's go back to the big, let's go back to January. And you mentioned Mitch McConnell. This is what, just to remind people, this is what Mitch McConnell said on the floor of the United States Senate. There's no question. None. That President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. The president did not act swiftly, he did not do his job. He didn't take steps so federal law could be faithfully executed and order restored. No. Instead, according to public reports, he watched television happily, happily, as the chaos unfolded. He kept pressing his scheme to overturn the election. And Kevin McCarthy, amazingly, said you know, roughly the same thing. And just to remind people that this was Kevin McCarthy before he went down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring. This was Kevin McCarthy's speech on the floor of the House of Representatives. That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility, quell the brewing unrest, and ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. And the President's immediate action also deserves congressional action, which is why I think a fact-finding commission 
and a censure resolution would be prudent. So Barbara Comstock, obviously, he uh, uh, changed his mind about the fact-finding commission and about the uh, resolution of censure and everything else that he said. So I, I know that we're flogging this, but so how how is what Liz Cheney said any different than what Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy said in the heat of the moment? It's not, is it? Well, no, it's not. And that's, you know, and, and Republicans certainly should remember that 56% of Americans supported impeachment. And when you look at Trump's numbers today, his approval, disapproval are, you know, way underwater. You know, he's down in the 30s. Now that in the red districts, it's the reverse. I get that. But the problem is overall, he's not somebody who's ever going to be able to unite the country or even unite the party. So, and I think no place demonstrated that more. And this is why I don't understand why Republicans don't look at something like CPAC, you know, the Conservative Political Action Committee, basically a Trump family gathering in Florida, where Trump's own pollsters took a poll of the people there, you know, unmasked people who were down there in Florida in February, and said, who do you want for the next nominee? And it was only 55% at his family gathering. It's like if you go home and ask your family, hey, do you like me? And only 55% of them say yes. You know, you got, you know, okay, that's that's not a viable situation. So why they keep doing it is because the, I think, is unfortunately because these loudest voices, the Matt Gateses, the, the Marjorie Greens, and I think that's going to now keep festering. You, you saw already, I think this morning, Marjorie Green was, is sort of challenging whether Elise Stefanik should be uh, the nominee. They're going to question her tomorrow, and you know, tomorrow night. I guess they're going to have a open, not open. It'll be a closed conference meeting, but everyone's going to get to ask questions. So now that you've opened the door on this, and Trump purity is the only test, then you're going to have people come after them. Bob Vanderplatz, who you probably, you know, for those who are nerdy Iowa uh, caucus. Uh, uh, you know, aficionados, you know, he's somebody who is really engaged in Iowa Republican politics, social conservatives. He's come out and say, said he doesn't like Elise Stefanik. So now it's going to kind of open the door to, you know, what's the next purity test? Chip and Roy, yeah. Putting all these purity tests out there, it's going to keep, um, you know, turning on itself. And Trump's going to keep, or or even his consultants are going to keep, you know, they whisper in his ear, hey, go out. I'm, I'm consulting on this race in, you know, North Carolina or wherever in a real red district. If you come out for my guy, then um, I can beat this person and we'll still have the Republican seat anyway, but it'll be a Trumpier person. So everybody's going to be at the whim of a Trump consultant, not just Trump himself. <laughs> Whoever can whisper to him, or, gee, it would be a shame if something happened to your little campaign here. You better hire me or I'll go work for your you know, primary opponent. And that's the kind of mess, I think, that this has opened instead of the party leadership saying, we're holding together. We're, we can have different views. Donald Trump can be part of the discussion. I mean, I would like him to be part, but I understand they might. It's, it's more his people, not him. But we're going to move over to the issues. We're done with this big lie stuff. You didn't lose the election. I mean, you lost the election fair and square. And all your conservative judges, for the most part, said so, too, including yeah, yeah. So, Republicans so, on the Supreme Court, including so, the ones you put on there. So did you do you know Elise Stefanik at all? Oh, sure. We yeah. ran okay. uh, in 2014 together. Okay. There were so, six women who we all 
went around and did events and we were supported by, you know, center right, you know, sort of, you know, sensible people throughout the country who wanted to have more Republican women in and people who were more center right. So, so what happened? So what what in your in, in your view, you knew her then, you're watching her now. What happened to Willie Stefanik? Well, I, you know, I don't know, you know, everybody asks that. And I just think it's sad, particularly to, you know, as I said before, to be a handmaiden, this whole effort that was essentially started by Matt Gates, who's, I guess, endorsed Elise now. And, you know, why on earth would you want, you know, and isn't it awful that Matt Gates is sitting there and no one raises any questions about him in the conference meetings. And he's now going on tour, you know, with, you know, the Gates green clown car tour uh, to raise money. And again, this is the kind of thing that scares members in their primary. So for Elise, I, you know, it's sad to see that because it became just a Trump purity test. And I guess she decided she wanted to pass it. But one of the most difficult, even after, okay, they're going after Liz, they're doing this. But then, you know, and McCarthy and Scalise make it clear they support Elise but she feels the need to go on the indicted, pardoned show and then to go on a Gork yeah. show. I mean, these are the bottom feeders of Trump world that they are now empowering. And that's where I think those bottom feeders are going to come back and start biting other members of the conference. And if you're in one of those swing districts, you cannot go on Steve Bannon or Gorka's show and or ca- cater to this nonsense. I mean, imagine if you're a Republican trying to get to run in Arizona and get that state back or get some seats back. If you're going to go out there and, you know, talk about bamboo ballots and all those silly things, you're not going to get that seat back. Yet this whole debate makes it impossible not to have to talk about that one way or the other. And whichever way you come down, you're going to be losing Republicans because they've allowed this churn to be out there going on instead of changing the subject and they think getting rid of liz is changing the subject but what it is is doubling down on trump well, the- well it is yeah no, the, the, the thing about someone like elise stefanik that that is puzzling to me look i i certainly get raw ambition and i understand that you know she's clawing her way up and she will do and you know say pretty much anything to get uh, to get some power and that's that's not unheard of in politics What's striking about her, though, is her complete lack of self-respect, as you point out, going to the Seb Gorkas and the and the and the Steve Bannons, that it's not simply that she you know, wants to advance, uh, that she, what she wants to demonstrate her complete lack of shame uh, in in doing so. So let me ask you this. What is what does Liz Cheney do now? Uh, she's uh, there are all kinds of reports that she intends to persist. She's going to continue to push this. She's going to travel more. She's going to speak more. Um, our own Sarah Longwell in the pages of the Bulwark says she should run for president. Uh, she said after the vote that she's going to do everything possible to keep Trump from getting back into office. So where, where does she go in a party that has shown you know no interest in supporting the position she's taken? Well, there's more support for her, both in the general public as well as the general Republican Party. It may not be the activist or the party, you know, the, the small group of people who are trying to drive everyone out in local, you know, party apparatuses, but, you know, they're not the ones who get people elected anyway. So I do think there is a broader audience for it. I think she will, she and Adam are very much committed, as am I, to the January 6th commission. I cannot, for the life of me, you know, listen. 
I'm no fan of Nancy Pelosi. I don't like those guys being in charge of things. But I can't understand why Pelosi and company, why they aren't already subpoenaing things like Donald Trump's phone records to find out who he was calling. Yeah. People who were working on that rally, their phone records should already be subpoenaed. Now, hopefully they were subpoenaed by the FBI already. They're putting together those connections and finding out what meetings went on. But, you know, you saw from that little tent scene before Trump went out to speak, you know, he had all the, you know, Mark Meadows was there and Trump Jr. And all the people said, you know, we're going to go out there and fight. That was organized by Team Trump. And that needs to be fully investigated. And I think Liz will now be able to, well, I mean, she already was calling for it, but she still will be able to um, really push that. And it should be, now it should be bipartisan. Publicly, it's bipartisan. But to me, January 6th really changed everything. And we've got to kind of tell that true story and show what happened. You know, Because you still have people out there in the party, like one of the people running against Liz, who says, oh, no, that was Antifa that was there on that day. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy, that he told the president, no, it's not Antifa. It's your people here. You know, and then the well, actually, we know from Jamie Herrera Butler. Um, so I, I think now she certainly can support those people. I know, you know, next next week I'm in Virginia, I'm going to an event for Adam Kinzinger's pack to mm-hmm. you know, need to help people who are going to be in this sensible center right. And let's remember the people who voted for impeachment, a lot of them are real conservatives. You know, I mean, Tom Rice in South Carolina right. is a conservative, a Dan Newhouse out in, um, Washington state is a conservative. Most of them were not moderates who voted for impeachment, which makes me respect them even more. That's certainly what I'm focused on, because whether we're in the majority or the minority, I think who the members are matter more that, you know, because that's how, how are you going to build the party going forward? And that's why last year I, I didn't support sort of the never Trumper efforts to, okay, we're going to get rid of all of them. You know, we're going to show and I, you know, I wanted, I think it's important Susan Collins is still there and she got to vote for the second impeachment. Yay. And I think it's important that, that others that I, you know, that we, a lot of the women and minorities that we got in, in those swing seats, you know, they're the people who are now going to have to answer these questions and that leadership has put them in the most difficult yeah. Even if you're in a moderate seat, you have those activists who are going to get mad at you that you aren't you know, foaming at the mouth about the big lie. So let's talk about something else that you're going to be involved in, um, at least according to Reuters, uh, the rationals versus the radicals, this uh, anti-Trump group of Republicans threatening a third party. Uh, Reuters reporting this morning, more than 100 former Republican officials will sign a letter on Thursday declaring that if the Republican Party does not break with former President Trump and change course, they will back the creation of a third party. Uh, The letter headlined a call for American renewal is an exploratory move toward forming a breakaway party. Uh, The group is dismayed by what it says is the Republican Party driven by its allegiance to Trump. Uh, The Republican Party is broken. It's time for resistance of the rationals against the radicals, says Miles Taylor, one of the organizers. Um, And but at least it's in the short term going to be staying with the Republican Party. And the Reuters story says that backers of the group include former Republican governors Tom Ridge, Christine Todd Whitman, George W. Bush, era Transportation Secretary Mary Peters 
and former House members Charlie Dent, Barbara Comstock, Reed Ribble, and Mickey Edwards. So tell me what you're hoping um, will will come from from this sort of third way group and how you're feeling about staying in the Republican Party right now. Well, I think that this group is made up of people who have differing views on whether to start a third party. I do think, and that's why we call it, it's American renewal, because we're hope I want to see the Republican Party renewed and have a future Republican Party. I'm not talking about going back to something. I'm talking about having a future party that is, you know, embraces, you know, more of the people, certainly the people that I've focused on, I'm on two boards to elect Republican women. I'm on the Republican State Legislative Committee to get more, you know, state house members. And I do focus there on women and minority candidates to get a more diverse party. So I'm very solidly in the stay in the party and fix it. I say to people, you know, I'm Catholic, my church has problems. I'm Republican, my party has problems. I want to stay and fix it. I do understand others feel like it's irredeemable, but I do know a lot of the people that I, I feel like we got elected or elected last year are people who I want to, from an outside voice, support their ability to kind of get past. I know when I was in, and I know all of them, any day you have to talk about Trump is a pretty miserable day for a good half to two thirds of the caucus. They don't want to talk about him. I mean, the vote for Liz back in February, which was two thirds for her, shows a silent majority of, of Republicans who don't want to go the Matt Gates, Marjorie Green way. The problem is that loud one third is, you know, is, is the one driving the car right now. And that's the threat. So I want to get those two thirds. I want to give them support from the outside, have them feel freer to do that, because I know it's a real challenge. And it's certainly easier for me on the outside to provide that support, but also you know, provide the financial support, provide the factual support, reminding everybody of what Trump has said in the past, you know, what the judges, the conservative judges we like have said, and just getting more, you know, just being a voice for that rationality out there. And having people feel like this is and, and the polls, I mean, the polls are showing independents do not like this swerve to the right, just like independents don't like the Democrats swerve to the left. And that's why I am so fearful of Trump coming back, because I don't want to go to the far left and I don't want people being driven over there because they feel like sanity has left the Republican Party. So I want to have uh, center right people to feel they have candidates, even if they can't support the party, that they have candidates that they can support. And I always say, well, hey, find candidates that you care about, work on their elections and get them elected. And then, you know, hope hopefully they'll stay the course. So I understand this argument, and I think it's a very important argument that it's important that one of the two major political parties in our country, you know, have you know, be sane, uh, be responsible. And I understand the argument that people like Michael Steele make that he's, it's his party and he wants to stay and fight for it. But a lot of the people listening to us today are going to think that's incredibly naive and that t this morning's vote made it starkly clear that there's no place in that party for the rationals. There's no place in this Republican party for people like Liz Cheney or Barbara Comstock. Are you just not getting that message? Well, I, I do. I, I certainly understand right now that 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 is, you know, apparently we're a minority voice. But I think when you look at the public at large and knowing that race, I mean, the majority is made by 
those districts where we can get independence. And I know, you know, how independents vote and people aren't paying attention to that because the vast majority of the Republican conference is in these really red districts. Now, we're going to have redistricting, you know, later this year. And a lot of these members are going to wake up and find their districts might be a little bit more purple. They're going to be a little different. They're not going to be as familiar with some of the people in them. That, again, can create problems from the right where people might come and primary you and think, hey, all I have to do is say, you know, I love Trump and I'll raise tons of money and I can beat somebody and then get in a safe seat. Or also, you know, in those swing seats, you're going to have people having to get those independents. So we have to have a party that understands that getting to the majority means <laughs> that we win Georgia again. We have to win Arizona again. We have to hold North Carolina and Ohio. And being crazy, I mean, Matt Gates, and for that matter, Jim Jordan passed on a Senate race because he knows he can't win. He didn't pass on that because he loves being in the minority in the House or even because he wants, you know, whatever he thinks he's going to get. He passed on that because he realizes he is a divider like Trump and he couldn't do what Rob Portman did, even in a state that Trump won. You know, so, you know, when you're running in an off year, you've got to be able to put together a bigger coalition than a Jim Jordan is capable of. I mean, if a Matt Gates tried to primary somebody in Florida, Matt Gates isn't going to win Florida, even in a Trumpy state. You know, Matt Gates is, well, I don't want to compare Matt Gates to anybody, but, you know, the Chris Kobach type seats are, are, we, there's a lot of churn and change that's going to be going on because when you're in a redistricting year, you've got to really know your district and the new lines and all of that's going to come up at everybody fast. And this could become a problem for them. And so those are the kind of things I'm looking at and trying to help those people in those swing seats, because any connection with Trump is going to hurt them. And like when you look at those five seats out in California that they won, they didn't have to run with Trump because Trump had no campaign in California. They didn't have to show up at rallies with him. They were just able to run their race and be real Republicans and say, listen, Democrats are going crazy off to the left, and that's not what you want. I'm a sane, middle-of-the-road, center-right Republican, and we gained back those seats that we had lost because they didn't like Trump. And they but, could actually okay, so, so, the top so, and then say, I want to check at the bottom. <laughs> so so you're going to help some of these 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 uh, you know, rational Republicans get elected, but, but when they let, – let's say that they succeed – and the Republicans win the House, they're going to come to Washington and they're going to vote to make Kevin McCarthy the speaker. How do you reconcile that? Well, I think that's going to be, I mean, you, you look at what the Trump people are already putting off. And this is, again, in that whole vein of these Trump people, you've just empowered them to be, you know, political terrorists within your party. <laughs> Where they're going to come out, and so they're already saying, "Well, maybe, maybe Trump won't support Kevin," or, or the Trump whisperers are telling him, "Hey, maybe you can go with somebody else." So I, and then, and that's all done to kind of keep, you know, keep these people in line. And I think when you kind of hand over your authority and your power in that way, then what's the next hoop they're going to ask you to jump over? I mean, I called it, you know, the Mar-a-Lago limbo. You got to keep, you know. Whether it's you know going on Gorka show or or Steve Bannon or or whatever other you know pardoned person that they have to you know kowtow to, that's frightening to me. And I don't. And that's while we're battling. I mean, 
I'm still a Republican because I don't like the policy. You know, I mean, I voted for the tax bill. I think it was good for mm-hmm. the economy and a lot of the issue. You know, what we did for small businesses and looking at the international economy, how we have to compete. I support those things strongly. I, you know, and actually, you know, Elise didn't vote for that. Now, Trump attacks Liz on being a warmonger. Elise was, you know, I think her record on those issues are pretty similar to Mm -hmm. uh, Liz's. So it shows how none of this has anything to do with issues. Yet the issues that are getting ignored, like what is our post-pandemic economy going to look like? How are we going to play an important role there? Because the Democrats want to make it more government controlled. I, you know, I think having a much more modern post-pandemic, you know, hybrid world where we're all going to, you know, be able to work and go to school differently. And and we've found a lot of good ways to do things during the pandemic, but we've got to find a way that um, we get women back in the workforce, that we get our kids caught up after this year of losing education. All those important issues are being ignored. Well, you know, and then what's interesting about today is, you know, speaking of, of, of all of this, that, you know, the the argument, of course, is that Liz Cheney um, was distracting Republicans, making it harder for them to make the case. In fact, that's all the Republicans have talked about. And in a in, in on Earth 2.0, I'm going to go back to that analogy. Um, Republicans would be talking about the biggest story of the day, which really, objectively speaking, um, besides besides the war in the Middle East, uh, what is the is the uh, resurgence of of inflation and what that means for spending plans? And what's interesting is that that this whole you know purge of Liz Cheney has completely wiped out the Republican pushback on the Biden spending plans and linking it to inflation. I'm sure we'll hear more about it. But if you want to talk about what the real distraction is and who's responsible for the distraction, this is a pretty good example today. If, if you look at the headlines, if you look at the news cycle, we're talking about Liz Cheney. We're not talking about the fact that we're uh, that we're looking at you know, 4% plus inflation and the implications for the Biden administration's push for more spending. That's the kind of thing, right, the, the Republicans used to love to talk about. Wouldn't that have been in your wheelhouse? You know, back in the oh, day, certainly. Uh-uh. certainly. And, the, and listen, the former president, besides bragging about where the where the Dow was at or the economy, he he never he wasn't involved in really putting together that tax bill. That was a Paul Ryan, Kevin Brady effort, and obviously people in the Senate. So you know, all these things that were actually good, whether it was judges being appointed by Federalist Society, basically picking out these good judges that we had cultivated over the years, or you know, Republicans who had put together these tax policies for years and got to enact them. Donald Trump had very little to do with that policy. Yes, he signed the bills. And and I, I'm happy for that. I, I got attacked in my election that, you know, I supported tax <laughs> cuts, that I supported, you know, tax reform and, and that I supported these policies. But those were policies that Republicans have always wanted. But now there's new issues that we've got to address in this post-pandemic world. And no, we're not addressing that. And and that's, you know, he is con- and putting out that statement that he did today shows, you know, they have no control over him. If somebody had said, hey, we're going to depose Liz today. Could you be quiet? And, you know, maybe, you know, can we turn the page? Well, of course, now he wants to go to what, you know, he wants to go to Wyoming. Maybe he'll go with Matt Gates. You know, Great. See, Wonderful. And, and do all these things that are going to be destructive to the party. And, you know, you look at somebody like Jamie Herrera Butler now. That's a seat. If if Jamie gets primaried, and I think she has a primary challenger, Dan Newhouse does too. Mm-hmm. 
lose those seats. And I can assure you, Kevin McCarthy knows that. So he's trying to get, I'm sure, Donald Trump to back off of these guys because I need those guys there. Every time you go in and mess with this, I can have another Chris Kobach situation on my hand and I and then I lose a seat. And then so that's the dynamic they're all playing with now. And I think that only gets worse. And that's why for the good of the party, I just to me, it makes no sense. I mean, I understand why they did it. It's sort of as Adam Kinzinger said, it's a short term victory of sorts. But when you're dividing our party, that's long term harm. And that's not the way to get, you know, back in the majority. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy thinks he can ride the tiger and that the tiger will eat him last. We'll see how that works out. I remember Donald (laughs) Trump always told us the snake story about it's like, we know Donald Trump's the snake. Why why are they not believing? You know, he's the one who like what, I mean, that awful story that I don't like, but you know, I, I think, relates to that. You you knew I was a snake when you took me in. Barbara Comstock, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it very much. Great to be with you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. All right.